Hello. I've decided that I'm going to do a short video after each speech, or in this case, set of speeches. I'm going to make a wee video talking about uh, how I feel about them, how I think they went, and so on. Um, partly, and I've already done this with the Oslo speech, because I had a lot to say about that. Sort of, not regrets exactly, but just comments on how it could have been better. And I thought, well, I could do this with each speech, because... Partly to as a sort of mea culpa if if the speech didn't go very well, but also to help other people who are thinking about starting this kind of thing themselves, public speaking. Uh, so, okay, well, th this is about the Dublin speeches. I'm going to do just because they were given on the same day and at the same event. I'm going to do them in the same video because there isn't really that much to say about uh, about the two of them anyway. So, the way this happened was. The organiser uh, of Comra Dublin, I think that's how it's pronounced, asked me to speak at this conference, and, he, and I said to him, "What I, does the conference have a theme? Because that's always the starting point. You know, that's the, the first one of the first things you ask." And he said, uh, he, "He said one. I think it was speech crime, and this like that word together, the two words bolted together." And I thought, "Oh, that's interesting. I like that's that sounds. I could give a good speech on that." And then later he said, also, this concept of uh, sameness is a lie, diversity is the truth. Uh, that's also going to be a theme at the conference. And so I thought, oh, right, okay, well, I could, I could give a speech on that as well, to be honest. And so it became, I asked if I could give two small speeches instead of one long one. And, and he said, yes. Um, and I still don't really know if that was the right decision on my part, because obviously it seems indulgent and egotistical but well it was it resulted in two speeches anyway which you know is not a bad thing um and at some point i realized that i was going to have a lot more to say about the first with speech crime than about the second so and that played out the speech crime one was uh, 48 minutes long actually and the other one was only 22 minutes long so that's the the, the background now Speech crime. That uh, was prompted by some new law that there be, that is being debated in Ireland at the moment. Um, I'm st I, I read up on it at the time, but this is like a, a month ago or six weeks ago now, so I, I'm I can't quite remember how it differs from the current uh, legal provisions. Uh, but it, it is. As I recall, it is in effect the start of hate speech legislation in Ireland. So, anyway, that was the prompt. Now, with my speech, I wanted to give a sort of comprehensive treatment of the concept of speech crime. Now, obviously, as I said in the speech, we don't... There is no legal concept called speech crime. That's a sort of semi-emotive, alarmist word that we are applying to the situation. And uh, I think it is valid for certain. I mean, it's definitely valid because, uh, you know, people are getting arrested and fined and getting criminal records for saying things. So clearly it, it's a valid concept. I wanted to really sort of tackle the subject from every angle. And I think I managed that successfully, to be honest. So I went through the concepts first. What is speech crime in reality, in practice? What actually is it? 
And so what is the definition of hate speech? And that differs. You know, you've got anything that promotes hatred or anything that is likely to promote hatred, whether deliberately or not. And now they're moving on to anything that comes from a position of hostility, like a statement that comes from a position of hostility towards the group uh, that it's referring to. And that's... Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is crazy. You know, this is where you, when you get realise that if you don't have 100% free speech, then you, you end up in very involved, fuzzy, complicated, muddy, unpredictable waters. You know, having to... Because obviously, if you wanted to punish somebody for something they'd said, then you'd either have to prove that it they meant to promote hatred by it, or they were foolish enough to say something that is likely to promote hatred. And they didn't for, uh, look ahead and see that. And if they did look ahead and see that, then they should have not said it. Uh, even if it's the truth, they shouldn't have said it. Or you've got to prove that it, they said it out of hostility towards the group, which, of course, uh, that's just beyond reasonable doubt. You don't have to, it's not 100% proof. And uh, you could quite easily uh, say, well, you know, he'd said this other thing about that group before, which would imply that he was feeling hostile towards them. And, you know, it. And so even if it is the truth, again, even if it's the truth, he shouldn't have said it because he was saying it from hostility. <laughs> I mean, that, it's, this is absurd. It, this is like how you would treat a bunch of five-year-olds. It's pathetic. It's not... It, it, I just don't think you can reasonably treat adults in this way, but this is the situation now. It's real. They are treating us this way. So that was the first thing, the concept of hate speech or speech crime. And then the reasoning behind it, offence, confusion, betrayal, and harmony. These are the four words I've written here. And offence, obviously giving offence, making people feel offended, making people feel offence. Offending people. All of those different wordings are different. They mean different things. And then confusion. The confusion that results when people hear things that don't chime with their worldview. That's troubling. It's unsettling. It's scary. And you can understand if you were to build a sort of utopian society where everything was taken care of, you can understand why the dictator would not want things being said that fucked up that harmony. Um, but we don't, we don't live in that society. We don't live in a utopia. And so there are things that need to be said that do disturb the harmony and do confuse people, but do so for damn good reasons. So it's not, yeah. Okay, I'll move on. And then betrayal. This is what I was talking about between friends. When you have a friend and you think they agree with you on basically everything, you share the same worldview, and then they say something um, that you disagree with, and so it feels kind of like a betrayal. And you try not to take it too seriously, of course, but it is, nonetheless, it's, it's annoying. It's like a thorn in your side. Uh, but that... That doesn't relate to speech crime, but certainly the betrayal of the social contract. You know, you could see speech crime as being that in in essence. You know, this person is part of a social democratic diversity state, and yet they're complaining about it. They're saying something against that paradigm, so they're betraying everyone else. <laughs> they're betraying their their fellow citizens, and therefore they should be punished for breaking the harmony, 
for breaking the consensus. Again, we're getting into scary totalitarian territory with this kind of stuff. You, I don't really think there is any justification for speech crime or hate speech legislation that doesn't basically lead into totalitarianism or have sm- have echoes of it. Um, I understand that it can have legitimately human justifications. I understand that some people just don't want trouble. They just don't, like, as I said about normies, they just don't want trouble going on. They they want a predictable existence, and they think that anyone who is reprimanded for saying something controversial was probably being silly when he said that controversial thing. I understand all that. So I can understand that people would support hate speech legislation out of quite innocent motives. Well, why offend that group? Why moan about that group? They're not going to, they're not going to disappear, so what's the point of criticising them? I understand all that. And actually, that statement is true. I mean, this is why I increasingly don't want to talk about Muslims or Islam on this channel, because that's not the real issue. But the real issue still does uh, head into territory that some people would call hate speech. I mean, just moaning about the presence of non-whites in your country, clearly a lot of people would call that hate speech. So, yeah, these different reasons... Okay, what I was going to say was some people support hate speech and speech crime, the concept, for innocent reasons. But I think in practice, once that legislation is in, is in place, you are heading towards totalitarianism because, or not even heading, let's not be alarmist or uh, fear-mongering about this, you already are in a semi-totalitarian state. You've, um, you've sort of opened the door to it, you've allowed it in. It might not seem tangibly totalitarian, but it is sort of spiritually totalitarian. Which, of course, means that you're infantilizing everyone. So those are the reasons. Now, then I went into the implications. And and this is how it starts to become absurd. Is a statement wrong or unforgivable, finable or an arrestable offence only when it comes from a position of hostility? So then, if you could prove that I have these complaints about, uh, let's just say, for example, Sikhs. I have these complaints about Sikhs, but I don't actually feel hostile towards them, and therefore it's okay for me to make these complaints about them. But then if you do have these complaints, why don't you feel hostile towards the group that manifest these things that you're complaining about? That's crazy. That's a, that doesn't make sense. Um, inevitably you're going to have some form of hostility or hostile feelings towards a group that do things that you find objectionable. How could you not? If somebody's annoying you, you object to that person. In total, because of their whole... It's not like you can just separate that one behaviour and say, oh, the rest of the person's fine, but just this one behaviour. That's not how people work. And it doesn't make sense either, because the rest of the person does influence that behaviour, create, promote that behaviour which you object to. So you're right to have some feelings of hostility towards the person in general. And it's the same with groups. Now, having said that, I don't think you need to have hostility or treat in a hostile manner 
every individual Sikh in this example. But to say that you should have no feelings of hostility towards a group who do things that you object to, I think it's just crazy. Again, it's this obsessive schoolmarm mentality that wants to control and force into unnatural positions uh, the object of their control. And then the other one is, how can you, this is the other implication, the absurd implication, how can you talk about certain things without promoting hatred? And I went into the Rotherham thing, and this is a huge um, tightrope that I was walking with the Rotherham series, and indeed every time I address this on the channel, this fucking uh, Islamist child grooming uh, tendency or phenomenon, how can you do? How can you talk about it without deliberately or not, most likely accidentally, promoting hatred of them? As I said in the speech, would you rape children and then not expect to be hated for it? Again, it doesn't make sense. But these are the the ridiculous intellectual provisions that the furniture that has to be put in place in order to justify hate speech legislation. And then I talked about the real effects of the concept of speech crime. And this was from based on my own experience in January and you know, throughout this year. And this bit of the speech was, I think, was almost entirely improvised. The rest of it I was reading off the page, basically, and occasionally uh, elaborating on something, but this bit was almost entirely improvised. I had only two or three lines on the, the screen to go on. And I think that was kind of right because it was the personal, it was a personal story. And um, I think it went well, except that I wish I had spoken more about it, the doxing and the, well, not so much the doxing, but the newspaper coverage. I wish I had spoken more about that from my family's point of view, instead of just saying, I think I said I've basically lost my family, that my relationships with various family members have dissolved. Instead of saying that, I wish I had said why that happened. Like From their point of view, how did they perceive what I had done, what my speech crime? <clears throat> because without that, it does seem self-indulgent and self-pitying. I want to, it would have been a more full account of things, and it would have been more uh, generous of me to paint it from their point of view, because they, they do have a point of view. You know, and this, this applies to other people as well. You know, if you do get accused of speech crime and uh, you go to trial or something, that will affect your family, as well, obviously will affect you, but it will also affect your relatives and friends. So you have to bear that in mind as well. Um, so yeah, that's my only real regret about this whole speech, is that I didn't talk more about how it had affected them and how they perceived it, my relatives. But um, I suppose it can be guessed at quite uh, quite easily, I suppose. Um, and then I ended it with recommendations about speech crime, of what I would do if I were in charge of society. Some people objected to that because they thought I was presenting myself as a dictator or a wannabe dictator, and that's bad optics. And I think it was fairly obvious that it was entirely hypothetical. I was just offering what I would suggest as a solution to this. And the phrase, if I were dictator, is just a figure of speech. 
So all in all, I think it was a good speech. I don't think it was, it wasn't spectacular at all, but I think it was effective and quite comprehensive. Um, yeah, and of course it's one more, one more speech, one more rehearsal. Um, and I think the people enjoyed it. One funny thing did happen. Uh, I spilt water on myself at one point. And uh, obviously I edited that out of the video, but uh, I'll show you it now just for comic relief. All right, I'm going to need to get a drink. I should have brought this over, sorry. <clears throat> okay. Oh, damn it. <laughs> I don't know how that works. I'll leave it just now. All right, and then the second speech was called Unpeoples. It was originally called Sameness and Sanctity, which might have been a better title, I'm not sure, but I changed it at the last minute to Unpeoples because it was a, it was about the, well, we have the, the term unpersoning, un, the verb, un, to unperson somebody, to make them, uh, it's like either to delete their record from the database or to, orphan their record from the database so that it still exists but they are no longer in touch with the, the network as it were um, they're no longer indexed so they effectively don't exist and I think a similar thing was was being was our, was being discussed here with this speech about with regard to not individuals but to groups peoples so it was this idea of un, unpeopling a people and um, I did make a point during this speech of using the, the noun people instead of group and peoples instead of groups, because I think that group sounds un, unhuman. It sounds cold and sterile. And we're not talking about people. We're not talking about the act of being a member of some club or society or organization. We're talking about something much more deep seated than that, an organic than that. So, and you might even say something more sacred than that. So I think it's the word group, I think it's in the same way that the word race, but for different reasons. Yeah, the word race has been sullied, obviously. So I, I think we should try to avoid using that word. And the word group, I think just is sterile. So I think it's probably bad communication for us to use that that word to refer to my group i care about my group um i did that for a long time i used that word but i think i would rather use the word people now i think it's just better it's more accurate and i think it has the de the desired effect uh, the desired connotations whereas group doesn't so unpeoples and it's all about this quote from the irish was it equality minister <laughs> fuck I mean, the very idea that we live in an age where there's an equality minister. And it's the same in Britain as well. I've forgotten who the equality minister is now. I can't recall. But, I mean, what a joke. What a fucking farce. That we've created a society, we've modelled society in such a way that it even requires such a position, such a, a post. Nonsense. We never needed this in the past. And even when we had this class-ridden society, where everyone was supposedly rigidly forced into a box. We didn't need to have... Well, I mean, I suppose that's kind of the, the reasoning for it, isn't it? They're saying that 
we we made this terrible mistake in the past of believing in hierarchy and uh, the proper way and proper positioning for people. And uh, so we don't want to do that now. So we have to assert equality for everyone. But, you know, it's just unnatural. And I don't think it's true or helpful. I don't think it works either. So now to get to this speech, it was 22 minutes long. I think, to be honest, it was probably the dullest speech that I've given so far. Um, the concept seemed interesting. You know, sameness is a lie, diversity is the truth. It seemed interesting, but I think either it wasn't really that interesting or I didn't do it justice. I just feel that this was an underwhelming speech that I gave. However, maybe it would have been better improvised, you know, like a 10-minute thing. I, I don't know. Um, however, on the bright side, it was an opportunity for me to tie together some ideas that I have voiced on the channel separately. Um, the necessity of stereotypes but also the limit of, of stereotypes. How your people is the beginning of your worldview, because they inst you know, install, they, they bestow, they give you ideas and perspectives. Uh, that Yeah, that is the start of your worldview. How group identity is a necessary component of individual identity, or at least a healthy component of it. And also that, and this was sort of new, uh, I don't think I'd voiced this before on the channel. The idea that diversity isn't enough and to fetishize it is to infantilize yourself because then you just end up being a sensation junkie, just looking for the next novelty and demanding that people, each individual that you meet, delights you in some way with, with their surprising individuality. I, I think that people can't live up to that. And it's also selfish and indulgent of any individual to require that or expect that of other individuals. So this sort of endless quest for more diversity, yeah, it's infantilizing. So that's all I would say really about that speech. I think it, it was fine. Uh, I don't regret giving it, but I do think it, it, it was mm, underwhelming. But I suppose the word would be... Um, yeah, sort of efficient, effective, but not exciting. Um, one thing I would say about this is that for some reason I got very nervous right at the very end. Like in the last, I think the last two, the last paragraph, I, for some reason I, I realised, I suddenly realised, okay, I'm nearly finished, I've nearly done it. Because I've been preparing these things, I've been working on them for, for uh, I don't know, a few weeks. And uh, I'd been paranoid that I hadn't, that wasn't that I, I wanted them to be as good as possible. So I was working on them whenever possible. And um obviously I wanted it to go well. And so at the very end, I suddenly got nervous that oh, it's almost over. I've almost done it. And I think my I can't remember, I think I hid it quite well. I think I papered over it. But that happened for some reason. And um I don't know why. But that's the first time that's happened in quite a long time. Because, you know, obviously the first speech I gave in Rotterdam a year ago, I was absolutely very, very nervous. And But each, with each one, you you get better, you get more confident, more relaxed. And uh, But then suddenly this happened. I'd, I don't know why. So um, that's really all I've got to say about this. Some people have asked me about Dublin 
in general. Uh, moving on from the speeches now, some people have asked me about the experience, but the truth is, uh, I, we didn't. I, you know, I was with Janet Taylor and some people, uh, some some Irish people, and uh, it was fun. But we didn't really have enough time together. I wasn't there for long enough in order to uh, really experience the city or the the countryside very much. We did go for a nice jaunt into the countryside um, and to a couple of stately homes. And then we ended up, <laughs> it's a very strange experience, walking in pitch black through the Irish countryside with Jared Taylor. <laughs> I mean, you just don't expect to one day be doing that, you know. It, that that was quite strange. And it was lovely. We ended up in a pub and we got some, some food and it was damn good food as well. I enjoyed that. We were just chatting away. Um, so that was fun. And we saw this ancient, I think it was a, an abbey. I think it was a thousand years old. And yeah, it was a nice time. But as I say, there, it's not enough to warrant doing an, its own video on my experience of Dublin because I just didn't have that much experience of Dublin, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, it depends how much how much money I have in future, but I would like to spend longer in each of these places that I visit because it's the same with Oslo. I think I was only there for two nights and that's just no nowhere near enough to, to then make a video reporting on it. You know, it doesn't feel, it feels disrespectful to do that. Um, so anyway, okay, I think, I think that's all I'll say about this. So hope it's been interesting. Hope it's been of some use to people who are considering doing speeches themselves one day. Thank you for watching.